What would it look like if we had a full sense of belonging in our organization? What would it look like if everybody had a seat at the table? If everybody felt like they could contribute? If everybody felt like their work was valued and that they were valued and that, and that their identity wasn't an impediment to their success? What kind of a culture would that be? What would that look like? Welcome to Create Belonging. This is the podcast where we explore the world through the lens of belonging. Today I'm speaking with Howard Ross. Howard is a lifelong social justice advocate from the United States and is considered one of the world's seminal thought leaders on identifying and addressing unconscious bias. He authored and co-authored many books on diversity and inclusion, including the book Our Search for Belonging, How Our Need to Connect is Tearing Us Apart. When I first started researching this podcast, and I, I did what most people do. And I go on Google and I start <laughs> Googling anything about belonging. I start reading anything and everything I can find on the topic of belonging. Now, one of the books that really spoke to me was this book. And it's contradictory. Well, what may seem that it's a contradictory title. I mean, how our needs to connect is tearing us apart. And that's exactly what I was finding, that rather than being a force for good, belonging was being used as a mechanism for getting into our bunkers and finding our tribes and sticking to our tribes. And it was that force of our tribal nature that was getting in the way of creating a world where everybody is welcome and included and we inevitably we feel like we belong. Now, I shouldn't have to tell you that this book was not only special to me, but um, for a lot of people, because in 2019, it won a gold medal award uh, for social change and social justice, as well as Howard's writings have been published everywhere from Harvard Business Review, the Washington Post, the New York Times, Fast Company, and dozens of other publications. And Howard has also received many awards and honors. Most notably, he founded the global consultancy Cook Ross. In 2018, he he sold the company and he founded his own um, consulting company called Udarta. You could check those out on his personal bio. I'm going to have links everywhere on, on the show notes. So as you can tell, I am incredibly excited and thankful that I got the chance to interview Howard for this pod. Now, it's not every day that... Um, that we get to speak to uh, an expert and especially around the topic of belonging and unconscious bias. But you can tell in this interview that I was so thankful and yes, I was really, really nervous as well. And before we dive in, I wanted just to to give a quick shout out to Adian McCullen. Now, Adian is the, the host and uh, he's an author and he's also the host of the Innovation Show podcast. Aidan McCollin was the one who put me in touch with Howard and um, recommended him for this pod. I don't think I would have ever gotten a chance to speak to Howard if it wasn't for Aidan's help. Now, of course, this conversation was wide-ranging, but we could have talked about a million different things, especially for someone who is very curious about belonging like myself and we barely touched on the topic of unconscious bias but we do get into a little bit about the paradox of belonging we also talk about the the role that media is playing um, especially around the united states how the media is really just tapping into our tribal nature uh, for profit and we also get into his book and how how and why belonging in the workplace is so important. We also cover two of the eight pathways for belonging. We cover also the idea of uh, bridging and bonding. Now, this was a very rich conversation with a true expert in the field. Stick around towards the end where um, I'll give you what, uh, what are the takeaways from me from this conversation. But for now, let's just dive right in. I hope you like the show, and I'll bring you Howard Ross. Howard, welcome to Create Belonging. So good to be with you. 
Thanks so much for having me and just uh, sending wishes to folks on your side of the pond. And I hope everybody's staying safe and well over there. Now, I want to start off with your book. I mean, your book, you did such an excellent job at packing all these, not just research, but also um, case studies from your person, from your work and your personal life. But you also managed to bring in some bits from the, from the cultural world, such as um, some quotes by Maya Angelou. And those have, that know me, I've been talking about that quote for, for a few years now. Okay, I wanted to simply talk about this quote. Uh, by Maya Angelou and it wouldn't be right for me to just to reference the quote without actually uh, giving you the the actual quote and the quote reads you're only free when you realize you belong no place you belong every place no place at all the price is high the reward is great okay that quote the first time I've heard it, I had goosebumps, and I'm having a similar feeling right now as I read it. This quote um, means a lot to me, and perhaps I don't have time to get into it all of it, so I just want to thank Brené Brown, uh, who's hopefully one day I'll have on the pod, but um, if it wasn't for her digging up this quote from the 1970s from an interview she gave... Um, yeah, this quote really speaks at the heart of belonging. And for those of us who have never been, who have never felt that we belong any place, we completely understand when when Maya Angelou says, you're only free when you realize you belong no place. You belong every place, no place at all. So, yeah, that's, that's a quote that we will be breaking down. And um, if you cannot wait for me to talk about it some more you could always um pick up a copy of braving the wilderness this is um one of Brene brown's seminal work and she talks at length about this quote and how our quest for belonging and really stands at the courage to stand alone so yeah that's all i have to say thank you Another quote that really jumped to me was the one that I saw on chapter one, which is a quote by Yumpa Lahari, and it reads, The essential dilemma of my life is between my deep desire to belong and my suspicion of belonging. So can you talk a little bit more about that quote, please? Sure, of course. Um, yeah, I think, I think that, that Lahari quote really spoke, I think, to the heart of the human dilemma, um, which is, uh, you know, we are encoded to belong you know it comes from from our origin when we were living thousands of years ago in caves and jungles if we were all by ourselves we didn't have really much chance to survive i mean it was it was only a matter of time before animals got us or before we hurt ourselves and couldn't take care of ourselves or something like that and so this imperative to belong to be included in the tribe whatever that tribe was critically important for our fundamental survival and then of course the other thing was if you were alone and you encountered another group of people you didn't have the chance to even defend yourself so so we're sort of genetically and evolutionarily designed to fit into groups and yet at the same time particularly in modern society um, we've been taught to stand up for ourselves to have our own mind um, to be individualistic, particularly here in the United States, but you know certainly throughout Europe that's true. I mean, a little bit less so in, in for example, Asian cultures, but um, but especially true for Western cultures. And so that desire to belong sometimes me, me, means we need to sacrifice a part of ourselves um, that may be important to us. You know, that thing that we might want to say but we don't say because we don't want to be rejected by the group, or the thing that we don't want to do that we do anyway because everybody else expects us to. And when we do that, part of us feels like we've, we've achieved something because we've gotten into this group get into, but another part of us at the exact same time feels like we've given something up. And so that's that tension between us. And that's one of the reasons why I think that the groups that many of us feel are the healthiest to be in are groups in which we can feel a sense of belonging, but still have some sense of individual freedom, still have some sense of individual expression. Yeah, and, and your book was, was really, it really captured that, that, that tension and um, and how our desire for belonging really it's tearing us apart in somehow. But you do offer a lot of practical and a lot of ways to get over those initial tensions. And and belonging can really be a powerful tool for 
for creating a, a, a more equal, a more equitable and, and um, more prosperous society. But um, we're going to get into that a little bit later. But currently, the, the work you're doing um, with is with the uh, Udarta. Is that, is that how you pronounce it? Yes, it's pronounced Udarta. It's a, it's a Hindi word, actually. It's the, um, yeah. and, uh, you know, I have, I'm not going to say, I, I won't say that I am Hindu, but Hinduism has deeply influenced my spiritual path. And, um, and so I did, I chose that word as to honor that tradition. Um, and it, the word means, uh, the, the kind of rough translation is generosity and kindness. And um, one of the things that we determine, when I say we, I mean my wife, Leslie Traub and I, who's been my business partner also for almost 30 years, when we sold our company, Cook Ross, back in 2018, which we had, I had started back in 1989 and we had run for almost 30 years, uh, we wanted to create another structure to work within, um, you know, not to build a big company or anything. And, and one of the things that we're really committed to is, is contribution. So more than half the work that we do now is pro bono work or community-based work. So we thought that name was appropriate for the company. That, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. And um, we'll, of course, have um, links to, to your website, to, to all the work that you're doing. Yeah. But um, so when I was reading your book, I, I, was, I was just blown away by the amount of information that you managed to, to fit in. And, and I was like, how is that possible? How, how, is that, how did you manage? And then I, I read your bio. And uh, you've been at this for, for a long time. And then, I, then it, they don't clicked in. It's like, of course, this is it's part of your life's work. So I wanted to know a little bit about that. Where, where, where did you get started? When, when did you know that you wanted to to fight injustice and, and help society become more inclusive and uh, fair for all. So yeah. when, where does that drive come from? Yeah, thanks. Um, well, you know, I like to say, people ask me that, I always, I always like to say I was raised right. Um, you know, I was born in January of 1951 in the shadow of World War II. My family is Jewish and came from Eastern Europe. Um, my grandfather on my mother's side, for example, came from a little village called Trochlenbrod in Western Ukraine. Um, and on uh, August 2nd and 3rd, 1942, the Nazis came in and killed all but 100 of the 5,000 Jews who lived in that village. My grandfather had left earlier. Actually, my grandfather had left in the early part of the 20th century when the yeshiva that he was studying at was attacked by, by the pogroms, and, and the pogroms, and, and he fled and by himself at 12 years old came to some country called the United States, a place called Philadelphia, where he knew he had family and, and settled in Baltimore. So. So, and then he later became um, a, really a, an activist himself. He was one of the people responsible for organizing the group that purchased and outfitted the Exodus ship. In fact, I know the people who are listening will be able to see it, but that, that uh, little, what looks like a little tombstone behind me and the picture on the wall is actually a, a, a plaque in his memory. He has a forest in Israel planted in his memory because of the work he did. And my father's mother, who also from Russia, um, was also an activist, and she was an organizer for the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. And so we had two very clear messages growing up. One was that terrible things can happen, and the other is you're supposed to do something about it. And so for my sisters and I, um, if I, we like to teasing it's kind of our family business. My older sister became one of the United States' um, most famous um, immigration lawyers defending immigrants. And my younger sister worked with uh, Marion Wright Edelman, an organization called the Children's Fund, which is committed to um, equity for children of color in the United States. And I started my career as a teacher um, and then went into consulting work um, about changing organizational cultures. And I had always worked in civil rights movements since I was 15 or 16 years old. So the two things came together in the mid eighties when organizations started to look at diversity work. So I've been doing this now professionally for 35 years. Wow, that's um, yeah, it's it's you could say it's in your blood, and um, yes, that I is think uh, so. yeah. So you've seen quite a lot over the years, and how yeah. how has um the issues of exclusion, you would say, or or discrimination and and so on, how has that evolved over the last few decades, and what are you seeing now that that's 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 unique? Yeah. Sure. Well, I think that there, you know, first of all, I mean, we know that history uh, isn't linear, even even movement. I mean, Dr. Martin Luther King famously said that 
the arc of history bends towards justice. And, and I think that's true in the long run. I mean, if we look, if we look historically at frame of reference and we, we go back over the last few hundred years, there's, there's no question that there's, you know, there's more equity, more freedom in the world today than there ever has been before. You know, um, we know that slavery doesn't legally exist virtually almost anywhere on the planet anymore. We know that women's rights are much stronger than they were and the rights of, of indigenous and, and uh, people of color around the world have been gradually moving in a direction. And we also know that we're not where we need to be. So, so it's the both end of it. And, um, and I think that uh, um, one of the things that's happened over the course of the last couple of decades um, is the introduction of what we might call more bifurcated media. And so, whereas when I grew up, you know, being 70 years old, when I grew up, you watched the same news, basically. You watched in the United States, it was ABC, NBC, or CBS. In the UK, it was BBC, whatever, you know, wherever it was, it was generally pretty homogenized news. It was, wasn't much of a difference between stations. And it was generally middle of the road, too, because in those days, you couldn't afford to take a strong stand because you'd lose half of your market share. And, and your market share was everybody. But then the introduction of cable news, which started to come in in the 70s and then really took off from a political standpoint after Fox News came in in, in the late 90s. Um, and now, all of a sudden, there was a different economic model and a different um, enrollment model, if you will, for these stations, because a cable news station doesn't have to get a huge share. All they need to get is 20%, let's say. And, and if I get my 20%, we'll make money, we'll be good, we'll be solid. And so what's one good way to do that? Feed the base. Those are the people who you know you're going to be your most rabid and loyal people. Throw them some red meat, and they'll, and they'll keep coming back. And so Fox did that on the right, and subsequently MSNBC tried to do that on the left, and here in the United States, and I'm sure you have similar kinds of things over there. And then Radio stations started to bifurcate. And then, of course, the internet came in, and you could go to this website versus that website. And, and then, of course, when social media came in, it all got accelerated because now I, I let's say I'm on Facebook. Facebook has, has an algorithm which sends me to things that seem to be consistent with what I already think. So I'm now getting this constant flood of input from stories that are similar to what I already have. And, you know, people, unfriend people who disagree with them and they draw friends who agree with them. So pretty soon we're all participating in our own private brainwashing, basically. And, and we, we get, we live in these echo chambers of only hearing things that we believe in and, and that agree with us. And that makes the othering of people who disagree with us that much easier. And there's, there's very little incentive to, to change because that's what's generating wealth. That's what's, um, and they have entire teams of people making sure that that they tap into that tribal instinct of us um yeah and it's yeah, yeah. And, and, and in fact in fact what ends up happening is that tribe that, that nature of, of tribal belonging tribal behavior gets more clearly identified because before then like if i go back to the time i grew up and you know and, and got politically active in the 60s um you know here in the united states you had democrats and republicans but there were Northern Republicans, for example, who supported civil rights and Southern Democrats who didn't. Um, there were, you know, so, so it wasn't defined so clearly by party line. It was defined by issues. I might agree with you on civil rights, but disagree with you on foreign policy, but agree with you on, you know, welfare reform and disagree with you on something else. That, that was what we might call an issue orientation. And when there's an issue orientation, you know, the, the ends are not as valuable as the middle because the middle is the place where you'll find the people you can form those coalitions to get things done. But once we begin to shift from an issue orientation to an identity orientation, it's now no longer what I believe in, it's which tribe I belong to. Am I the Fox News Republican conservative tribe or am I the MSNBC, you know, liberal democratic side? Um, and, and all of a sudden they're litmus test. So if you're on our side, you can't believe in that thing because we don't believe in that. And, and that's where you get this tribalization. We move from an issue orientation to an identity orientation. And once we have established an identity orientation, then it's very easy to see how we get to hanging out with those people isn't good. Compromise yeah. is no longer a good thing. Yeah. And um, I mean, one of the examples that you gave was the, the word compromise became taboo in, in the Senate. That's and right. um, there was a there's a famous uh, interview that that you you describe yeah, in, in your book. John Boehner, yeah, John Boehner, yeah. the, uh, the Speaker of the House of he, Representatives. 
Correct. And he wouldn't admit to the word compromise because <laughs> that that played on, on it was an attack on, on his own identity. That's right. And, and more than that, even more than that, Mateo, it threatened it threatens his belonging in the group. It, it, it risks that he will be rejected by the tribe that he's a part of if he seems to be compromising. It's, it's like in, it's like soldiers, you know, <clears throat> you know, fraternizing with the enemy, you know, was it was a, a crime? You know, you could be you could be court-martialed for fraternizing with the enemy. Well, why do we do that? Well, in war, it, there's the, the logic to it for people who believe that in war is if I start hanging out with you and you're in the other side, um, and I see that you're like me, you're a father and a grandfather, and you know, you care about this and you play the guitar, and I mean, all of a sudden it's harder for me to kill you. You know, when you're just, you know, you're just one of those people, and this is one of the reasons we come up with the names that we do, you know, chaps and goops and all these things that we call people, because then we homogenize them as the other, and it makes it easy to, to kill people. Now, you know, I told you earlier, I, I live on a farm just outside of Washington, D.C. And uh, our neighbor has cows. And um, and I was talking to him when we came out here at the very beginning. And I said, you know, what the, the, the cows have named? He says, no, you don't name the cows. I said, why don't you name the cows? He says, because they're beef cows. I said, what does that matter? He says, because you're going to eat them. You don't want to name something that you're going to eat. So it's very, it's a similar kind of a thing. You know, the more the more we know something for who it is, the less we treat it like what it is. And, and so, you know, keeping people as an idea or a concept or a stereotype makes it much easier to go to war against them, to kill them, or to subjugate them. Yeah, and it's it's really unbelievable how how the world has has changed in, in such a way that um, mm. that it's no longer manipulated, not only for political gain, it's it's also done for for financial gain, <laughs> and um, that's also. And before the issues were about identity, now it's it's more about no, let's let's keep them apart because we're making money. Um, yeah. And there's also, which is, I think, it's also important for us to recognize the role the fear plays in this. And and you know, and, and I've said many times that I think that um, the world is living in collective post-traumatic stress since 9/11. And I think certainly we here in the United States are, but I don't think it's us entirely. And certainly, throughout, certainly throughout the Western world, there's been that sense of post-traumatic stress and. What we know that happens with people during periods of prolonged stress and fear is um, what uh, Daniel Goleman, the, um, the, of course, the, the guy we consider the father of emotional intelligence, calls an amygdala hijack. And that is the fear center of the brain takes over the system. Everything that we do begins to be organized around keeping us safe. And one of the things that happens at times like that, when we're in that kind of a state, is um, is what some people call the turtling effect. And that is, during times like that, we pull back in our our shell being the people we feel the safest with. That is the people who are more similar to us. And, uh, for some people, that might just be their family. But for many people, it's like-minded people, um, people who look like me. And so, for example, we notice that more division happens racially. And then this is, historically, we've seen this happen before. I mean, uh, prior to Hitler and Mussolini, you know, Germany and, and Italy were in that kind of a post-traumatic stress situation coming out of World War I, dealing with the financial kinds of things. And so this contributes to this kind of a mindset, which is we try to react to that by generating safety in any way that we can. And that usually means keeping us far from anything or anybody who we perceive to be dangerous. Yeah, you talk about, um, about the amygdala hijack in the book. And you also mentioned that another factor, which I, I didn't know about this, was that we tend to assume that things will last longer than they are, that we assume that the current situation will be permanent. That's and right. so not only are we experiencing threat, but we also not seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. That's right. Which we, is, we yeah. It, what, what they say, the way they say it is that we think things are going to be personal, persistent, and permanent. So it's going to be happening all around us. Um, all around us and centered on us, and it's never going to go away. And many people remember, I remember in, here in the, uh, the United States, um, I had to fly to be with a client the first day that they opened the airports after 9-11. The, the airports were all closed for about four or five days, as I remember. And, uh, and I had to go and I had to fly down to Texas for a client. And I get to the airport and, um, and there were like eight people on this airplane, you know, and it was so freaky because you know, the sense was, is this going to happen every day now? And, right. you know, I was in. And so we got an air and the pilot went through a whole thing of all the things they had done to secure the plane, to make people feel comfortable and everything else. 
but but it is that sense, and I think often people often people have that sense. We similarly um, on January sixth, when we recently had this attempt at an insurrection um, at our U.S. Capitol, um, you know, driven by uh, former President Trump's lies about the election. Um, that there was a lot of feeling immediately after that is, oh my God, are these people going to be coming after us, those who are on the other side? And, and I think that's a natural tendency for people to think that. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, I mean, your book really lays it out and it's, it's, it just so well um, explains how, what is it that we're experiencing right now and why and how we got to the, the place we are right now. But, um, Let's dive in, dive in a little bit into your book. And um, sure. Now, you did something really clever in your book, which is you you talk about three individuals, mm-hmm. and um, you set them in the in the workplace. And um, why don't you go ahead and introduce them just uh, briefly? And then um, why why did you do that? Why? Um, sure. <laughs> yeah, I'll, well, I'll well, edit that part out. But yeah, yeah, sure. Well, the, the three characters are, they represent three archetypes. You know, one is a, a young gay man um, who's married, he's in a relationship and he sees himself as a liberal, you know, and then um, the second is a conservative woman who, um, you know, is kind of fairly typical in that regard. And then the third is a, is a Muslim woman of, of color. And so the, the whole idea we were trying to get across was, really based on the whole notion of intersectionality, which is a concept that was first in, introduced by uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, who's an American academic, brilliant ac- American ac- academic. And, and the idea was they find themselves at this party and you know the, the gay man and the Muslim woman kind of can relate at some level because you know they he supports equal rights, she supports equal rights. And so they relate on that. But but then again, she's a little bit more conservative. So she's not really comfortable with his sexual orientation. And so in that sense, she aligns with the more conservative woman. And the conservative woman kind of kind of allies in her mind with the gay man because because the Muslim woman is clearly the other, but actually the gay man doesn't align with her because they're really politically different. So we, so the whole idea that we were trying to communicate, and I want to acknowledge, by the way, John Robert Tartaglione, who, who um, helped me in writing the book, is a mentee of mine, a brilliant researcher. And the reason we chose that was because we wanted people to see the fluidity of this, that it's not, it's not so clear that you are the other and you know, I'm the insider and you're the other, because that may be true right now, but that could change when I immediately go into another group, because maybe I'm aligned this way with you, but I'm not aligned that way with you. So for example, if we're playing in a band together uh, and that's our group and you come from a different religious background or even a different political policy. Years ago, I, I played in a band, I'm a musician and, and the drummer was a hardcore conservative, but we enjoyed playing music together. We just didn't talk politics, right? But if the two of us were in another circumstance, we might've been at each other's throat. So, so I Correct. think that that's what we want people to see is that it's not as hard and fast as sometimes we think. It can be moving all the time at different times. The metaphor I like to use for that, Mateo, is a little bit like the tiles on a computer screen, that one of them can come up front and obscure all the other ones behind them. Even though they're still there, we just can't see them at that moment because we're so focused on the one that's in front. Yeah, and it's... um. The fluidity of, 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 of belonging is, is it's, it's present throughout the book, and it's, I thought that was great. And what really struck out to me was your focus on the workplace. And at first I was like, okay, you're taking the easy way out. Um, sure, we'll focus <laughs> on the workplace. <laughs> what about the rest of society? But then you really made a really strong point. And, and so why don't you tell us why did you focus on the workplace? What's, what's so special about the workplace? Belonging in the workplace, well, that, that is. Yeah, I mean, the reason, the reason that I, that I um, first one thing, the reason I do my work in the workplace, or have done my work for many, many years, not exclusively, because I also work in lots of other domains, but, um, and the reason I think it's especially important right now for us to do work in the workplace is because if we think about it, the workplace is one of the, one of the few places where people have to be with people who are different from them, whether they like it or not, you know. Um, uh, Dr. King, who I, of course, already mentioned earlier, used to say that um, the Sunday morning is the most segregated time in America because people went to churches or places of prayer. They were only there with people who were like them. You know? And uh, schools today are almost as segregated as they were in the 1960s. Um, people choose are choosing to live in more segregated enclaves than ever before. 
Um, and so we've really divided ourselves almost as, as parallel societies, but the workplace is the one place where everybody has to come together. And I can come together racially, you know, being a white-skinned Jewish man. If somebody says, you're going to work with this young Black woman on this project, it's like, yes, sir, I'll work with this young woman on this project. If, if I'm a, a liberal Democrat and somebody says, you're going to work with this conservative Republican on this project, unless I want to leave my job, that's what I do. So, so on one hand, it forces us to engage with each other. On the second hand, it gives us motivation to get along because in order to get our jobs done, we have to learn to work together. Um, so I think that the workplace really more, maybe more than ever before is a real opportunity for us, not only to create healthy environments for people to work in, which in and of itself, I think has real value, but it also has the ability to influence us societally because when I've had that relationship with this person I'm working with who's so different from me, and then I have a next door neighbor who's also like that, maybe I'm a little more open to the possibility that my next door neighbor is not such a terrible person. Yeah, it's, yeah, I, belonging in the workplace is, it's a huge topic. Um, when I launched this project, I, I didn't think, it's like, yeah, okay, we could talk about belonging in the workplace. But then I, I realized that there's, there's just so much potential for, for, for like as you mentioned, to export the lessons and and almost if you would, you could always say you could run some experiments in the workplace that maybe could work in different contexts. And one of the things I saw also is it's there's a lot of people that talk about the workplace as being a family, and um, you don't see it that way. So why why is that? Well, I think that you know this is some something that people have said for years. You know, we're trying to create a family type. Of, of, um, atmosphere, but there are a couple of things wrong with that. First of all, um, the workplace is different from family because we don't choose to be, most people don't choose to be in family. I mean, yes, one could say you marry somebody, you become family, you're creating family together. Um, but you're, you know, family goes beyond most of the things that we associate. You know, there's an identity there, a co-identity. My sister is my sister. No matter how much time we spend with each other or don't spend with each other, we're, she's still my sister. Um, and, and that's different than the workplace. The workplace, people choose to come in and leave, and they make that choice based on their own personal needs and how this situation is, is focusing on them. So that's one reason, because I think that the, the perpetuality of identity isn't the same. But the, the other reason is because that I discourage people from doing it is because most, as many families as I know are dysfunctional as are functional. You know, there's all kinds of dysfunctional uh, functionality in family environments. And so, and so I'm not sure that it's thing we want to replicate. I, I, the metaphor that I prefer to use for workplaces is a community, a place where people have come together for a shared purpose, for a shared intention and have to develop some kind of relationship with each other, some kind of, I don't want to say codependency, that's too strong, but certainly, what happens to me is likely to impact what happens to you. And so, and so as a result of that, we, we come together in, in collaboration to create the kind of community we want. And in a community also, there, there's, the, there's a dimension of, of contribution. You're there That's also right. to contribute. That, That's right. Um, there's a certain expectation of contribution, which is true in a family. You know, if my, like I said before, if my son is being a deadbeat, let's say, um, and I'm fortunate because I don't have any sons like that, but let's say I did, um, he's still my son, you know, if my employee is being a deadbeat, he's not my employee for long. And so the sense, like I said, that sense of perpetuality of, of um, identity is, is not necessarily there. It ends as soon as I'm no longer working with you. Okay. So sticking to the, to the workplace, um, how can company leaders accelerate to push towards becoming more diverse and inclusive in the workplaces? And um, you could take it anywhere you want sure well i mean look that's a, that's a, that's a whole lifetime body of work so not, it's, it's not easy to come up with a short answer to that but but i think there are a number of things i think that there are a number of things and um that one of the things that i think is incredibly important is in the work that we've done around diversity and inclusion over the years uh, a lot of it has been about fixing problems you know fixing things that are broken um, even sometimes the mindset that people can have about fixing people you know who's the racist here who's the sexist who needs to be fixed the problem with that is that we know two things. First of all, we know that um, that when people feel like you're trying to fix them, it triggers activity in the dorsal posterior insula of the brain, which is the same part of the brain associated with physical pain. Anybody who's in a relationship and has tried to fix their partner knows how well that doesn't work. 
you know, um, it brings up resentment because it, it inherently, when we say I'm here to fix you, I'm saying there's something wrong with you. And, and people don't obviously don't like to hear that. But the second reason is um, that it doesn't work is because at some point we get fatigued of fixing things. It's, it's, it's not inspiring to fix things. And so we fix this problem. And when we, have a, when we have that orientation, we will inevitably find another problem and another one and another one. So, so it, it, uh, it becomes almost like um, if you've ever been to a carnival and seen that game whack-a-mole, you know, where the bowl pops up and you hit it down and then another one, and you try hitting it down as soon as they're coming up. That's how it feels sometimes. And so it's led often to a lot of diversity fatigue. Um, the people are just tired of it. It's like we're, we're always talking about what's missing, what's wrong. And so what we found was it, it, in the research and also out of the personal experience that I've had in working with literally hundreds of thousands of people all over the world is that instead when you create a vision, and, and this is where I think belonging is such a helpful concept, is like we create a vision. What would it look like if we had a full sense of belonging in our organization? What would it look like if everybody had a seat at the table? If everybody felt like they could contribute? If everybody felt like their work was valued and that they were valued and that, and that their identity wasn't an impediment to their success, what kind of a culture would that be? What would that look like in this hospital, in this you know, factory, in this warehouse, in this, in this business environment, office environment? Then all of a sudden people can say, okay, what do we need to do to get there? Yeah, we may need to have to fix some things to get there, but it's, but it's not just fixing things for the sake of fixing things. It's now correcting things or modifying them so it helps us get to that state of vision that we were looking for. And if we think historically, um, this kind of thinking has, has consistently been inspirational for people. Why do we remember Martin Luther King? Because I have a dream, he said. He didn't say, I'm coming to get you racists. He said, I have a dream of an America where our children can all play together. You know, Gandhi had a similar attitude. Uh, Nelson Mandela, who among all people had every right to be resentful, he lost, you know, almost 30 years of his life for this. And yet when he came out, he spoke a vision of a united South Africa. And so I think that what we've seen time and time again is that these are the people we look to as a real transformational leaders because they create a vision that gives us an opportunity to live into and that inspires people. And what you just talked about is one of eight pathways to belonging. Yes. And your book detail each pathways with, um, with practical examples. And um, we're not gonna, we don't have time to go into them um, one by one, but one of the things you've done as well is you transfer these eight pathways and also took some of them and, and put them in the, the work com um, context because these eight pathways can work in almost any situation where we, where we have people interacting. That's and right. the eight pathways to belonging are, one, a clear vision and a sense of purpose. Two, creating a container. Three, personal connection, vulnerability, and consciousness. Four, inclusion and enrollment. Five, cultivating open-minded thinking. Six, develop shared structures and forms of communication. Seven, honoring narrative. Eight, tools for negotiation and conflict resolution. So obviously we didn't have time to cover all eight pathways, but I just want you to list them. So um, hopefully to get you a little bit more curious and to check out the book for the rest. Okay, back to the conversation. You talk about as well as one of the things that's, that, that really struck with me was um, honoring narrative. And yeah. this is about the power of, of language. Yes. And that is one of the eight pathways. But um, can you expand a little bit more about honoring narrative? Sure. Um, you know, we, we, we have differences with each other. Um, you know, inevitably in life, you're going to have differences with people. You know, we're doing a lot of work now in, in, here in the United States, especially around racial equity and what we often call anti-racist leadership. And that is how do we dissemble the system of racism that we're all a part of? And one of the things that we're doing as part of that is we talk about um, the experience, especially the African-American experience here in the United States. We go back to, you know, 1619, when the first black slaves came to the United States, the enslaved people came to the United States, and, and how the laws over a period of time have been intentionally written to exclude, and that people's life experience gets influenced by that. And, it, and I just did one of these sessions yesterday, and at the end of the session, you know, 
I mean, a bunch of the white people have said, wow, I never knew that story. You know, but now that you know the story, the narrative behind people's experience, you, it's much easier to have empathy because you can say to yourself, wow, you know, what if I had lived that? You know, a lot of this got sparked. If, if you don't mind me taking a couple of minutes to tell you a story. No, no, please. It's, it's no, no. One, of the, one of the moments in my life that really triggered this. This was back in the, probably in the early 1990s. I was working down in Monroe, Louisiana in the South, Southern part of the United States, which is where um, it was in a, it, it, where David Duke, who is one of our most famous racists. Um, friend, friend of uh, Trump, I would say. Yes, well. exactly. Um, was um, when he ran for governor of that state, that was where his headquarters were. So that's the kind of place it was. And I was doing a two-day session for a newspaper. And in the first day, a lot of the Black folks in the, in the program talked a lot about some of the stuff they'd had to deal with in the area. And, uh, and then on the second morning, about an hour before lunch, there's a young white man who worked in the, he was actually a pressman. He was one of the people who ran the presses, so kind of blue collar, you know, maybe late twenties, early thirties. And, um, and, you know, flannel shirt and blue jeans, kind of a working class kind of guy. And, and he raises his hand and says he has something to share. And he hadn't shared yet in the program. And as a facilitator, you're always happy to see a new voice come in, you know. So so he starts talking and he says, you know, I've been listening to folks sharing and, and I feel conflicted. I said, well, really, what do you feel conflicted about? And he starts talking. And he's looking at his lap the whole time. And he says, I grew up in names a little town, a little area outside of the city. He says, and my daddy and my granddaddy were my heroes growing up, taught me to fish, taught me to hunt, taught me what it was to be a man. Best men I ever knew. And then he stops, doesn't say anything else. He's still looking at his lap. And I said, uh, I said, I was about to say, what's your point? When he looks up with tears in his eyes and says they were in the Ku Klux Klan. Wow. And, and everybody inhaled, you know, everybody in the room was like, oh, you know. And, uh, and he said, wasn't much talked about, but it wasn't much hidden either. I'll never forget that. And he goes on to talk about the fact that that while on one hand, he really likes the people he works with, and he believes them when they share their stories about the things that have happened to them. But for him to buy into it fully means that his father and his grandfather were bad people. And he knows they were the best men he ever knew. And he couldn't sort that out. And I remember, you know, and I just pulled up a chair and we just talked, the two of us, and then we broke and, uh, and you know, people actually applauded him for being so honest and are open and, and, uh, and then he, I looked up there at, the, at lunch and he's sitting there very close to the strongest black voice in the room, this guy who had been a reporter from New York who came down and the two of them were just talking with each other. And I remember flying home that day on the airplane. And I thought to myself, first of all, three things. First of all, I got to figure out how to make that happen again. You know, whatever happened there is an important thing to happen. Secondly, I thought to myself, you know, we've been doing this work as if our intention is to make people good people. And if people are good people, they'll do the right thing. But this was clearly a good guy. He was raised in a different narrative, but he was a good guy, you know. And then the third thing, which is the thing that really um, fueled this whole inquiry more than anything else was, I had to sit there and say to myself, if I grew up in his narrative, if I grew up in his family, could I really say that I would see the world any differently than he did? And I had to be honest and say, probably not. You know, I happened to be, as I said earlier, I happened to grow up in a different narrative completely. I happened to grow up in a narrative that said, you're supposed to go out there and do good things in the world. You're supposed to treat people fairly. You're supposed to fight for people's rights. That's the narrative I grew up. And so here I am doing what I do. But if I'd grown up in his narrative, you know, I might have been working as a pressman in the newspaper. So, so I think that it's, um, it, it was a real aha for me and recognize that we really have to understand people's stories. And when we share our stories with each other, there's almost always a deep sense of, or a possibility for a deep sense of connection because we begin to realize that we have far more similarities often than we think. And um, it just goes to show what, about the the challenge that that we that your work has, and and then what I'm trying to do with this podcast is, it's just so hard to get people to reconsider their identity because it really puts us in a place of not belonging, and and we want to just grab on. We we cannot leave our our tribe because that we we really dependent on that. Mm-hmm. So identity is is. Sometimes we can, it's so strong with us that in order to find common ground, we cannot expect them to, to assimilate to the, to the, to the tribe. And, and in your book, you talk about how these forces to, to create belonging, you could either bond with people or you could create bridges. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. 
Yeah, we, we have certain relationships in life, which, and, and this is work, by the way, I want to acknowledge Robert Putnam, who's a sociologist at Harvard, who really created these distinctions back oh, about 20 years ago in his book, Bowling Alone, brilliant book on social capital. And the distinctions are this, you know, we have some relationships in life in which we are inherently consider ourselves bonded with people. We're part of a group in which we co-identify. So, so sometimes that could be a family, you know? Sometimes it can be a group of people you went to college with who for 20 years you've maintained a relationship with, you grew up together, and no matter what, you're, you're not, nothing is gonna tear that apart. You could hate each other for a period of time, you know you'll come back together again, you know, like your family, you know, usually you know, like is like that. Um, sometimes it can be a, an identity one shares, like it might be a racial identity, especially with we find this is true for people in non-dominant groups. So, so for example, African-Americans here in the United States, often if they walk past each other on the street, will nod to each other. And it's kind of a little way of saying, hey, hope you're okay, we're in this together. You know, it's, it's this kind of recognition. And, and those bonded relationships are incredibly important for us. They're, they're safe ground. And this is the place we, when I talked before about turtling, about coming back into the shell, this is often the place we go back to is to the relationships we feel bonded with in the safest way. But then there are also relationships which are incredibly important to us, which cross some of those divides. And so we have cross-racial relationships. We have cross-gender relationships. We have relationships with people from other countries or from other belief systems. And the um, expansion of social capital in our life, the, the richness of our experience in life is really built as much or more on those bridging relationships than it is on our bonding relationships. Yeah, I mean, we, it's great if we're bonded, but you know, but being bonded becomes a pretty closed society and it's pretty limiting. And we've known from all the work we've done on diversity that the value that diversity brings had for different insights, different points of view. There's nothing wrong when people bond for a positive purpose. You know, people come together to lift each other up. They come together to support each other. Um, that, that's fine and usually doesn't prevent bridging. But when people bond against something, which is what we see happening now, it can be exceptionally dangerous because, because then the other becomes even more of a threat. And now I've got people around me and we see this happening now. And as I said earlier, social media feeds to this. So if you're into right-wing extremism and you can get on social media, you're with a lot of other people all the time, talking all the time, which is different than it used to be because it used to be maybe if, you're, if you were really extreme, you were kind of the person standing in the shopping mall kind of spitting at people as they walked by. You know, you were, you were right, sort of isolated. Right. But now you can get online to find 10,000 people like you all around the country. And the same, by the way, is true on the extreme on the other side, you know? And so now we've got the ability to coalesce these groups of, of extreme bonding against others. And it soon becomes, you want to belong to us? You know, I can't tell you just, I had an experience of this even in writing this book, Mateo, because I had a lot of people on um, the right who who said, well, this book feels lefty to me, and they didn't like it. And then I had people on the left who said, you know, you, you, you talked to 100 of those Trumpsters, you're out of your mind. You're crazy. You know, what do you mean we should try to meet them halfway? And I never really even said that we meet them halfway. What I've said is let's find the things, try to find the things that we can agree on, right? Um, because if we we try to find as many things as we can that we agree on, maybe we won't have to define each other so much as the other, because maybe instead we can get back to saying, well, I, I agree with you in this, but I disagree with you on that. But nonetheless, it's threatening for people because once you're in this group and you've circled the wagons and you're, you know, you're, you know, ready to, to fight, um, then one of your people who doesn't condemn the other side becomes a threat to you. And, 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 and so it, it deepens. And so it's really important that we recognize that both of these are important. And then sometimes um, you also can uh, find in a relationship or in a series of relationships that there's misunderstanding because one group thinks they're bonding and the other group thinks they're bridging. We've seen this in the work that uh, Leslie Trout before, she's done a lot of work with women and race. And we find this a lot of times in relationships between black women and white women. And that is white women coming from their bonded relationship as women, as sisters, I think we're all women, we're all in this together. But black women have this other experience also of race and say, well, not exactly. I'm bridging to you. White women think they're bonded, but black women think they're bridging. And this can cause sometimes hurt feelings because black women can feel like white women are being a little presumptuous and white women can feel like black women are sort of whole, being standoffish um, when in fact, they're simply coming from different orientations to the relationship. What you make very clear is that um, the bridging sometimes leads to bonding. And that, that is the light at the end of the tunnel, that um, we have to make sure that, yes, we are bonded within our groups and we're extending bridges, 
and eventually we want those bridges to to get a little bit closer. Yeah, I mean, there there are people in my life, you know, Dr. Cole, who I mentioned before, who's you know, since sort of peer right on my shoulder, who was an 84-year-old African-American Christian woman from the South originally, and I'm, you know, a 70-year-old white Jewish man, and um, from, from, well, I was from Washington, D.C., not quite the North, but, and, and we are family. You know, we are absolute family to each other. There's nothing I wouldn't do for her. And I know there's nothing she wouldn't do for me. And I have, I have many relationships like that, that where bonding has come over time. Um, and that, and you're absolutely right. I mean, that's how we, I, I believe that's how we deepen and enrich our lives is by expanding our circle, expanding our circle of belonging, expanding who's in our tribe in a sense outside of our identities, but into really what's our philosophy of life, what things are important to us, how do we care about each other and those kinds of things. And I think um, that's that's just a great place to come for a circle, but um, I'm not going to let you off the hook first. I have some <laughs> some quick rapid fire questions. So the first one is, what is one place or country that you're curious of to visit and why that you haven't visited yet? Mm-hmm. Interesting. China. Yeah, I've never gotten to China yet. And, um, you know, I mean, obviously it's one of the most significant powers in the world right now and, and a fascinating culture. And I've been to Taiwan, but I've never been to mainland China. And so that that's one place that I'd really like to go. Another one is Tibet. I've never been to Tibet. So. Mm. Yeah. It's um yeah, it's it's a big chunk of the world if, if yes. you haven't been to China. Yes. I haven't yeah. been myself either. So yeah. I spent a lot of time um, in Asia but but not in China. So yeah. So. Okay. Your favorite meal? <laughs> well, the, the responsible, healthy part of me would say one thing, but the truth is, it's probably pizza. Right. I'm with you. I'm a, I'm a big pizza fan. There's a child fan. in me that still loves pizza, you know. So. Yeah. Um, what's a movie or show that you're currently watching that you would recommend? A movie that I um, just recently watched for the second time that I really recommend for people who want to understand race in America is Ava DuVernay's film 13 which is a film about the 13th Amendment and how it affected American life. And, and I think it's really, um, really important. Yeah, it's, um, I, I've been, um, I mean, we're having this conversation on February, which is um, Black History Month in, in yes. the U.S. And I think every year I tend to, to get even more quality content um, that comes our way. And people are seeing the, the power of, of getting those stories that, that have been just forgotten. They're, they're bringing those out. And it's, 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 it's just really great to see. Yeah, well, this yeah. year, I think especially because in the aftermath of the George Floyd lynching, um, there's been a huge, you know, a huge. And then, of course, this, the, uh, the protest this summer resulting from that, I think that there's been a huge reawakening of the need for more information, more history. And so some of the big stations and networks have really focused on that and, and got some great material out there. Okay. And the last one is, if you finish the, the sentence, is I am in my element when? When I'm with my family. Yeah. You know, there's no yeah. question. In the heart, my, my wife, my four sons, my six grandchildren are at the deepest mm. part of my heart always. That's great. Now, Howard, we, we've been at this for a while now and um, we, we've talked at length about your books, about your work. Is there anything you have for my audience that, that you would like uh, to communicate? Yeah, I mean, thank you so much, first of all. It's really just so delightful to talk with you. And I really appreciate um, your thoughtfulness and your questions and doing your homework beforehand because it make, always makes it a, a richer conversation. Um, I think, you know, one of the things I would say to people is that we are in a particularly remarkably challenging time in our history. Um, this, well, it's interesting. I just, there's a, a new name people are starting to use for this, not pandemic, but syndemic, which is, you know, a syndemic is something when you've got more than one calamity going on. So we've got, in this case, we've got the health issues. We've got the political separation. We've got the, the weather challenges. We've got, you know, the climate change challenges. We've got, you know, we're in the middle of a maelstrom of stuff that's going on. And one of the things that we know, and you and I referred, talked talk about this just a little bit earlier when we talked about Germany and Italy in the 20s and 30s, is that during times like this, um, it's especially easy for us to slip into this othering process because, um, because our fear draws us back to where we feel safe and our fear makes it easier to see the other as a threat because we're already 
scared. And so what I would say to people is to, to be aware of that and, and to recognize that now more than ever, bringing compassion and empathy to people around you um, is important. Uh, your next door neighbor may disagree with you politically, but they're also scared about their mother or father getting COVID. You know, the, the person down the street who you, who you may not know or even like may also be worried about losing their job just like you are. And if we can tap into that empathy for each other, then we may have an opportunity to come out of this circumstance whenever that other side comes, and it will. Eventually, this, you know, we will get this disease under control and we will get back to some sense of normalcy. But maybe rather than coming back to where we were beforehand, maybe we can use this breakdown as an opportunity for a real breakthrough and to recognize, for example, how much healthier we would have dealt with this if knit together as a world and really we're working as a collaborative world where, where we could have had one country working on vaccines and another country working on, you know, protective garments and another country working on education. And, you know, if we could all come together and put our hands together, wouldn't it have been better in the end? Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, that's great. And awareness, as you right, rightfully put it, awareness is key. And one way to get aware is to to pick up a copy of your book because, I mean, it's really an eye-opener mm -hmm. and it really, really helps you to contextualize where we are, what can we do about it? And um, it, it's just a really good place to start to really understand how can we create belonging for ourselves and for others. So, Howard Ross, thank you so much for being on Create Belonging, and it's it's been it's been really special. Thank you. You're so kind. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Okay, now it's just me, just Matteo, and I've probably listened to this conversation, oh, probably a dozen times um, <laughs> with all the editing, and. Every time I just, I was so wowed by the entire experience. And my question to you is, which part did you like the most? What were your takeaways? I have to repeat it again. And as I did in many parts in the conversation, now this book is jam-packed with examples, stories, and even practical tips and instructions on how to help diverse teams to bridge between themselves. Now, we didn't even have time to cover many of the other books, in particular, the book that um, he's most well known for, which is called Everyday Bias. But um, until my next conversation with Howard, I wanted to link in the show notes a Google talk that he gives back in 2014. And he goes into a little bit more about what his take is on unconscious bias and the book is of course based on many research studies as well as uh, tapping from his wide experience. So this was the second episode and I really loved my conversation with Howard. I couldn't thank him enough for being uh, for taking the time for sitting down with me once again, I want to thank Aidan McCullen for making this happen. And if you remember from the intro, Aidan is the host of the Innovation Show podcast, which is an excellent podcast that I follow and I listen to religiously. Uh, Aidan also has a book out, so go check that out. I have links uh, on the show notes. I also wanted to thank James Robinson, who is an Emmy Award winning sound genius. He also happens to be one of my childhood best friends. And in the first part of the this conversation, I actually had the audio recording device turn up too high and I ended up frying my the audio thanks to his amazing ability with sound. James was able to clean that up and it now sounds a lot better than it did when I first listened to it. And lastly, I just want to say thank you for, for tuning into this episode. I've gotten so much feedback from the first episode, and I would love to get some more. So if you have any feedback, both positive and constructive, please send it to createbelonging at gmail.com. 
if you're enjoying this podcast and loving it, and if you're willing to give it five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, please do so. It is still a work in progress. I Every time I listen back to these episodes, there are a thousand things I can improve. But I'm just, just happy and honored to be in your ears right now. Thank you once again for being here. Go create belonging for yourself and for others. Thank mm-hmm. you.